Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, bonds. As you uh, probably already saw, the I had said something about I got my dates, my weeks wrong. This is the last week of new material, and then next week on Monday we review, and Wednesday we test, and so look forward to that. Now, this last this chapter on bonds, what I do today is all terms and definitions, and that spills over into Wednesday. The math in chapter seven. That will not be on the midterm exam, but the terms and concepts could be. Uh, well, some of them will be. But so, uh, look forward to next week being the exciting week, in the middle of the semester, and all of that. What am I thinking? Oh, okay. But other than that, it's time to look at the numbers. There you go. Just an absolutely dull day on the street. Even the bulls, the NASDAQ finished bull territory, but up. Oh, it was actually up a little bit. It had a little bull run there at the end. But the S&P 500 up a big whopping 0.01%. The Dow was down less than a quarter of a percent. It's just a lot of money staying on the sidelines right now, just not doing anything. And so whatever is going to come from uh, new information will have to come from new information later, not today. But notice crude oil pulling back as I had said it would do. It's coming down. It's trying to find its way back into that band that had the 88 as its top end. And so gasoline prices, they made a little surge and now they're sinking again. So that's good news. Keeps our economy rolling. And that's uh, good news for you, of course, because of jobs and internships and just generally uh, the prospects for our economy. Even uh, on that same note, gold has slid well out down from that uh, magic $2,000 an ounce line, which means that the uh, gold bugs expecting the economic apocalypse are going into uh, hibernation now, silver down too. Okay, the 10-year bond, yield up, price down. So investors are selling bonds, getting out of bonds, and they're not really moving into stocks, into equities. So it's a lot of money just staying off on the sidelines right now, waiting for something exciting to happen. And if you look at the volume on the S&P 500, well, there it is. Now, a, a quick note here, but first of all, notice the volume is well down from the typical day over the last year. 
It uh, finished at about 2.4 billion shares. An average day over the last 52 weeks was at uh, three point, better than 3.7 billion shares. So there's not a large amount of investment into equities right now, but there is indication that volume is low, but it has been creeping upward day after day for a while. I've been watching it and it, yeah, there is tentative movement of a little bit more activity uh, into the equities. So it's, it's coming around, but they're not going to just jump in and say, yay, it's time to start investing big time. It's not there yet. We are in a recovery right now, not the expansion. When you see that number getting up there closer to the average daily volume, that will mean that we're making the transition from recovery into expansion, which is good news. But anyway, uh, more about this. If you look over here, the euro and the pound, the British pound, are both sliding, depreciating against the dollar. As a matter of fact, the euro is coming, it had gotten up to as far above $1.12 per euro. Now it's back down uh, around $1.04 to $1.05. We are beginning to see the signs that the euro will go back down to parity with the dollar. One euro equals one dollar. Which, uh, and what's going on with this? The, uh, and Japan is the same way. These are inverted, as I said. The Japanese yen is sliding against the dollar, depreciating. So the dollar is appreciating against these major currencies. The Eurozone and Britain and even Japan are, are in uh, economic difficulties right now. In the Eurozone, factories are dead. They are really have slowed down uh, production. And of course, slow down production means uh, fewer jobs, which means, uh, well, job growth is declining and consumer products aren't coming out and business products, industrial products aren't coming out. So that is an uh, indication that these economies are in difficulties right now. Primarily, we all were facing across the globe inflation. The U.S. got in front of it quickly, relatively quickly, jacked up interest rates to drain the draining the liquidity out of our uh, money supply, out of the economy, and so we have almost finished the job. The uh, Europeans and the Japanese and the uh, British they waited a lot longer. So they're now pushing their interest rates up, which is slowing their economies down. And so we are going to recover sooner than they will. And that is good for us, bad for them uh, to, a, to some extent. And this is what I was talking about before. You get in front of an inflation as quickly as you can to drain out the inflation, but more importantly, to drain out the expectation of inflation. And that's what we're seeing is we're, we're finishing the job and a lot of the other ma our major trading partners are not nearly finished with the job and they probably won't be for a while. 
So that's what's going on there. Now, as you can see, over on the other side of the world, Tokyo last night, it started out with a bull spike right at the bell, and then it just tailed slowly downward through the rest of the day and finished below where it started by the end of the day over there, which was early morning here. And then London wakes up, and London just tailed off through the day, finished off a, about one and a quarter percent. There's that slowdown going on. The investors are pulling out of the equities in the markets, and that's just going to be the way it is for a while. We're going to start seeing better economic times, and I would suspect that we'll see a bull market setting up soon, soon enough. Okay, now let me, um, let me do a couple of companies. Let me start with one. Since I went to a movie last night at the AMC, I went to see A Haunting in Venice, decent movie, but AMC, it went up, this is after market, it's down a couple of pennies, but th the trading day today, it was up 2%. That is pretty um, remarkable in a market that was lackluster all day. What's the deal with AMC? Well, they have a lot, they have harsh com competition uh, from such theater chains as the Marcus and others. But uh, let's have a look here just to see, look at the beta. This is risky, really. I mean, this one is above two, 2.05 beta. That is really risky. Price earnings ratio isn't being reported because this company is losing money hand over fist. It is bleeding from major arteries. Negative, uh, it's losing $5.88 per share. That's an awful lot of blood flowing out of that company. But, well, let's see what's going on. No dividend. So let's calculate the capital gain. Uh, which would be the total holding period return because there's no dividend yield propping it up. So we'll run this, uh, run this uh, on the calculator to see the capital gain. Calculator, okay. Yahoo is uh, projecting a price per share in exactly one year of $16.63. On an investment today of $8.15, Minus one. Now, when I see a number like that, I think I forgot to subtract one, but I know I did. Times this by 100, AMC is predicted to have a capital gain of 104.05% for the year, over the next year. That is staggering. I mean, there's no dividend yield, but there doesn't need to be for this company. Uh, so if you put $8.15 in, you'd make over 100% return over the next year, according to the projection of Yahoo. That is an insanely good return. But look at that risk, 2.05. Yes, greater risk, greater expected return, but this is a hell of a return on AMC uh, for one-year hold. In fact, early this morning, and do not take this as investment advice, for God's sake. I took a, an even riskier than normal position in AMC this morning. 
probably because I took an investment position in it, the, co the company will go bankrupt or something. Lord knows that's the way it seems to work with me right now. But anyway, there's that. So you've seen one company, no dividend yield, uh, so it's just pure capital gain, losing money, stupidly high beta, but there's a prospect for a hell of a return, one year return on that stock. Now let me go to another company. Did you hear about the news, were you aware of the news about Kellogg that came out? Kellogg split into two companies, two separate companies. Now that usually will just piss off the stock investors. So let's see what happened. Kellogg, K. Yep, really honked them off. Almost 6% drop in the stock price today. It just went to hell and, uh, because the, in, in, uh, the investing community saw this as a bad move on the company's part. I can't remember the two trading symbols. They're still act using K right now, but I think one's KLE or something like that, and the other one, I don't know. But anyway, as you can see, the volume was just insane on the stock today. Sell, sell, sell. But look at this. The selling began at the opening bell. The bears just beating the hell out of the stock. But look right down here. These little vertical bars are the volume. See that volume spike? That was a bear, that was a bulls putting the brakes on the slide. And then there was a little bit of a recovery through the rest of the day, nothing much. The investment community is just doing a wait and see right now. But that tends to point to, the, yeah, this is an overreaction. And that's normal in stock markets. The markets will overreact one way and then they'll realize the error of their ways and it will come back up. Notice that the beta of Kellogg is a mousy 0.42. So it's a safe company, it's profitable, and it pays a really nice dividend with a yield of 4.03%. I mean, the company's not going to die. Let's see what the gain is, the, annualized, the annual return is. First, we do the capital gain in a year projected at $70.44 divided by what you, $70, let's try that again, $70.44 divided by what you'd pay for it right now, $52.50, no trading in the aftermarket, minus one times 100. Oh, what the heck? Let's try that again. $70.44 divided by 52.5 minus 1 times 100. There you, why, is that, why is that being a but? Let's try it one more time. Let's do it. Um, $70 and... 44 cents divided by 52.50 minus 1, there we go, times 100. So the capital gain yield for, the, for a one-year hold 
would be 34.17%. That's darn nice. That's a decent return. Now, if we add the dividend yield, the money you get from a, getting a dividend, 4.03%. Good grief. 30, let's, what, something is going wrong. I, I'm keying it right. Let's try it one more time here. $70.44 divided by 52.50 minus 1 times 100. Now plus 4.03%. On the keyboard thingy. Thirty total return for a year one year hold thirty eight point two zero percent. That's decent for a stock with a beta of 0.42. That's that's really nice. So there you have it. If you're a risk taker, AMC might be your play. If you're a risk averse, Kellogg doesn't suck notwithstanding what the bears did today to smack the price down into the dirt. They tried to, but uh, Kellogg, again, Kellogg is not going out of business. Kellogg is one of the largest cereal makers in the world. It's, it's got lots of products, brand loyalty, great marketing campaigns, all the, all the good stuff. So there's reason to believe, yeah, it's going to recover. The overreaction is going to be corrected. Notice the P.E. ratio is only 21. A lot of it went down today. The price went down, so P.E. went down. But, I mean, that's well, that's undervalued. So there is good reason to believe the price will go up. P.E. ratio will recover back to toward intrinsic value of the company. So there you go. I know it's going to be... How do you know that you can trust that? I can't. I mean, whom do you trust? Do you trust me? Of course not. Do, uh, I mean, do you? There's nothing, there's no crystal ball. We reach for information. We use it to the extent that if we have other information, we might use that. If we don't believe this information, then don't try it. Here, I'm just using this as a teaching tool. But at the same time, my own judgment tells me that at that low P.E. ratio, it's going to, there's going to be price, upside price uh, potential. How much? I don't know. But at a beta of 0.42, I'm still, that's still good investment. P.E. ratio low and uh, beta, very modest. I think this, is a, this would be a good investment. Is it going to pull 38.20%? I don't. I can't guarantee you that at all. But it sounds good. You know, if you're in a, if you're in a finance singles bar, are you going to be more popular if you say I don't know, or if you say I do know? How many of the those popular bloggers get on every show and say I don't know what the hell is going on? The only ones that get famous are the, and make a ton of money are the ones who act like they have God's ear. Or ear. Okay, so, yeah, good question, though. The uh, upshot is that 
you take finance so that you don't have to trust anyone, not even yourself. I trust my cats. They don't like me. That's a good sign. Okay. Today's subject is bonds. To start it off, the corporate finance is divided into equity, which is stock, stock, and that represents ownership. in the company. <laughs> Debt, on the other hand, is borrowing. This is an obligation. Equity, if the price of the stock goes up, you get a dividend. Well, there's gravy. There's no guarantee at all that you will be made whole by an investment in stock. No guarantee whatsoever. You are going to ride underneath the debt, which is an obligation. You, the company must pay off the debt. There's no question about it whatsoever. The company must pay its debts in a timely manner according to the agreement that you have entered into. Now, when I say bonds, I'm referring to longer term debt instruments. Uh, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 years. There's no legal limit on how long in the future the debt can mature. The maturity date could be 21, 23. Now, as far as the uh, debt goes, if you, uh, and debt and equity, as I've said before, if you don't give the stockholders a dividend, if you don't make the stock price rise, what can the stockholders do? They can cry. That's all they can do. Well, there's shareholder derivative suits, but that's something else. They are not guaranteed anything. But if you do not pay an obligation per the contract on a debt, the, the debt holders will switch you off. They will liquidate you. The only thing the company can do in that case is it can run to a bankruptcy court and file for protection under Chapter 11. But other than that, the debt holders can end the company. That's what they can do. The debt holders have the prior claim to the company's cash inflows. The shareholders have the, pro uh, the residual claim. Whatever's left over, if anything is left over. So that's why the, de the sh stock is riskier than the debt. The bonds are safer overall. 
Now, if you look at the beta, if you talk from, about it from a beta standpoint, the beta, you see betas of stocks anywhere from 0.4 on up to 2.8 and things like that. Bonds, if you look at their betas, their betas are usually between zero for treasury bonds and uh, maybe 0.5 for a decent grade corporate debt. So, what goes on with the debt? First things first. Debt is a structured agreement. It is a document. In fact, that document is called the indenture agreement. And I had been teaching courses like this for decades before I actually saw a physical copy of, the, of a bond indenture agreement. It is thick. It is a contract. You, in your lives, mo almost all of you, will actually enter into an indenture agreement. When you buy, buy a house on a loan, that document, all those papers, sign here, sign here, sign here, that is an indenture agreement. It contains all of the formalities, all of the specifics, down to the last detail of how this debt works. So how does it work? There will be the who. Who's lending? Who's borrowing? There will be the how much. $200,000 for a house. $500 million for a corporation. Now, The interest. Now with consumer debt, we call that the APR. With corporate and government and all that kind of debt, it is called the coupon. Company borrows $10 million on a 6% 20-year uh, bond. $20 million, so 6% says that every year in two installments, but don't worry about that part, but every year the corporation must pay the lenders, the bond holders, 6% of 20 million. 6% of 20 million. So in other words, the, the corporation, the borrower, will pay Let me do that. $1.2 million in interest. They will send a check to the bondholders for $1.2 million total. Now, if there are 10 of those, each bondholder of equal amount would get $120,000. 
This is where the distinction comes between consumer debt and corporate slash government debt. When you make payments on a consumer loan, you are paying off, you're paying two things. One is you're paying the interest on the principal that is the principal at that time. But part of the payment also pays down how much you owe. So in other words, the part of a consumer loan that pays interest, we say that's servicing the loan. Interest paid, servicing, and then balance paid, that's called amortization. Corporate and government debt doesn't work that way. The only part of a, of a bond that is paid during the life of the bond is the interest. Then at the end, the original amount borrowed is paid. So at the end of the 20 years of that bond, $20 million, all along the way, every year, the corporation was paying $1.2 million to the lenders or the bondholders, I should say. Okay, and at the end, one last $1.2 million payment will be made and then also the 20 million will be paid back all at once. And that's where it gets, I'll qualify that in a minute here. But at the same time, in other words, the debt is being serviced, but it is not being amortized. That's how corporate and government debt works. It's serviced, but not amortized. Okay, so, how much? Okay. When does it end? That's called the maturity date. So let's say you have an MSFT, $20 million, 2043 bond. That would end on a specific date in, 2020, in 2043. All along the way, Microsoft was paying the $1.2 million a year to the bondholders. And then at the end, one last interest payment and the $20 million check is cut. And it's over. That's the end of it. So that's, how, that, that, that's the start of it, okay? There are other parts of it too that go into this mix. Uh, the bond indenture agreement, all of this that I'm writing here are called the covenants. The covenants, all of the paragraphs and the subparagraphs, those are the terms of the agreement, the covenants. Now among those, <coughs> other ones. One thing I should point out right here before I forget it. The bondholders will have a trustee. The trustee could be a law firm, an accounting firm, perhaps even maybe an individual, the IB, something like that. Now the trustee 
represents the interests of the bondholders and has power over decisions of the corporation during the life of the bond. Board of Directors, well, you know, we want to do something special for the shareholders, so let's, let's issue a $5 a share dividend. The trustee will say, no, you're not. Like hell you are. You're bleeding uh, free cash flow. You're, you're bleeding. We want you to put that money back into the company. Reinvest it. Because we don't want any possibility that you can't pay our interest in principle at the end. Okay? They're going to say no to that. The executive management and the board of directors have agreed, well, we're going to take on this new direction in our company with all this uh, uh, high risk, high return stuff. The bondholders saying, like hell you are. We don't want you to do that. Yeah, that might benefit the shareholders, but if it goes tap city, you're going to impact on what we get back from you. We don't really want you to drive yourself into bankruptcy because you had a great idea that didn't fly when it hit the market. So they're going to have that power to tame the corporation. It's the same thing that would happen in your case, sir. I'm the lender. I'm a bank. And you decide that you would borrow money from me. When we have this agreement on the table, you say, yeah, well, I'm thinking, you know, take this house and I'm going to turn it into a party a house and with an all-night soiree and maybe a mosh pit in the backyard. And I'm going to say, like, hell, you are. And, well, I can do what I want. My house, right here. You borrowed from us, you're our bitch. Yeah, in a manly sort of way. Yeah. But you understand what I'm saying here, is that they will have that say so, because, yeah, that may be a great place. Oh, your, your man card is issued. But one of the, that mosh pit, the minute that someone threw in this big tank of propane and said, watch this. Well, you have a lot of fried uh, tweakers uh, going on there. So the, the trustee, during the life of it, there's a covenant that'll say, we have this guy right here, or this woman right here, or this law firm, or this accounting firm. They're going to watch over you. You're, they're going to have, be at the board of directors meetings, and they will have a say. Okay. Now, going on. Uh, in no particular order here. Is it a mortgage bond? Or is it a debenture? Now, when Microsoft borrows that $20 million, it might say, well, we're going to back that, that uh, loan with this factory. So in other words, if the company does go tap city, those bondholders, those ones that lent that $20 million, they say that factory is ours, liquidated, and all that money goes to us. You see, that means, uh, but a debenture is not backed. So now when I say a mortgage, you are entering into a promissory agreement. When you borrow a house, borrow for a house, you say, well, I got a mortgage on this house. No, you, no you, got a, you got a promissory loan and it has an attachment that is called a mortgage. Now some loans won't have a mortgage, won't have such an attachment. Credit card debt is a classic example. It is a debenture. A car loan 
is a mortgage loan. When you get a, take out a car loan, you've got a mortgage. It's because it's backed by the car, the asset, a physical asset. In my business, uh, one of the businesses I was in, they called them ETFs, uh, Equipment uh, Trust Certificates, and those uh, it was a borrowing to proceed with what you were going to do, but it's backed by the equipment that you use the borrowed funds to buy. So uh, th there are all kinds, debentures, mortgages. Now notice that a mortgage would have a lower coupon than an equivalent debenture because the default premium would be much lower on a mortgage because there's, if they default, you, there's an asset to back it. But if it's a debenture, well, you just hope that the company liquidating, you'll get some of that. So the coupon on a debenture would be higher than the coupon on a mortgage bond simply because the default premium on the debenture would be higher than the default premium on the mortgage bond. Other things. Sinking fund. In your accounting class, did they show you how to account for sinking funds? I don't know if they do that at the uh, early level. There's, a ver there's another thing that can be done called serialization. Let me explain. I lend Microsoft $20 million. And I I'm going to get my coupons, my interest, and then at the end, I'll get my $20 million back. Well, I am not going to let that ride. To, well, I hope they got $20 million in 20 years. No, I'm going to have a covenant that says you are putting money aside every year so that well before the maturity date, you have that $20 million to pay back at the end. They're going to make sure of that. That's a sinking fund, money that's being put in on a yearly basis to make sure that the face value of the loan is satisfied at the end. Serialization is, if, if the book hadn't brought it up, I wouldn't talk about it. But since it was brought up, yes, serialization is more popular. Now, it works like this. I, uh, Microsoft has borrowed $20 million from me, the investor, the lender, the buyer of the bond. Okay, now the way serialization works is there will be an agreement that every year, starting some year down the road, maybe year 10, something like that, Microsoft will buy back in the secondary market some of the bonds. Let's say that Microsoft agrees that starting in year 10, they will buy back $2 million worth of the bonds in the open secondary market. Those bonds are trading like stocks. Microsoft will just go in and borrow or, and buy some of it back, a chunk of it. 
so that by the time 20 years come, uh, shows up, it's retired. The whole issue is retired. It would be the same, and this has become, it, it comes and goes in popularity. With well-to-do people who take out loans, let's say a 25-year loan on a really nice house, what they'll do, they, they got lots of money left over, they got great incomes, so every year they pay off, let's say, 10% of the loan or 20% of the loan. That's the same thing. They're buying back from the bank a chunk of the principal value, just buying it back. It's exactly the same idea of serialization. Now the bank may or may not be thrilled about this, and if, they start, if the borrower starts doing it too soon, there might be penalties involved, so you wait a while. But yeah, this is the idea of making absolutely sure that by the time the loan matures, it's, it's done, or nearly done. That's the same thing with serialization. It, well, it is serialization, but in a consumer type of way. So there, there's that. What else do I want to do here? Serialization, trustee, mortgage, debtor, and all that. I scrolled down a few notes, but maturity, term. Oh, oh, let me bring this one up. Oh, God. There are callable bonds. There are puttable bonds. And there are convertible bonds. Callable bonds. And I'll do this one again on Wednesday. The, if, if you notice already that this is getting kind of intense here, there's a lot of terminology going on. This is corporate. Welcome to the corporate uh, business world. But callable bonds. This is a possible covenant in the indenture where the company could pay off the bond early. Now why would a why would a company, why would Microsoft want to pay back its bond, call it in early? The, real, the reason would be simple. Interest rates have gone down. Microsoft, let's say in 10 years, wait a minute, interest rates on bonds like ours are going off at 4%. The hell with paying 6%. We'll call in this bond and pay it off. Now, of course, that will piss off the lender because the lender wanted to keep getting that uh, 6% and it'll come back and get money that they can invest only at only 4%. So, you know, there's that. And I'll talk more about that on Wednesday. Now, a puttable bond, uh, a puttable bond is one where after a certain period of time, the lenders could require that the bond be paid off. If I'm a lender and I, I, I'm getting 6% and now interest rates have gone for equivalent bonds to 10%, I might put that bond. If I could, I'd make Microsoft pay me off. 6%? Like hell, 
pay it all off so I can get 10%. Consumer loans have a put provision. It's called an acceleration clause. Have any of you ever heard it in a mortgage loan? Yeah, you would. Okay, but here, here's a, just a simple example of an acceleration clause. I haven't made my payments for three months. Oh, I'm going to make them to you. I, I, my, my house, I just had a little uh, misstep with my, with my job, and, but I'm going to pay off. No, what the uh, lender is going to do is say, we have an acceleration clause. If you have not paid for a certain number time period, we make you pay the whole thing off immediately. They accelerate it. That's a put. That's a putable bond. So if you have an acceleration clause in your mortgage agreement, uh, mortgage loan, you could have, if you don't pay, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to send you a letter saying, you are now due for the entire amount that you owe us. Well, what does that do? It teaches you who's boss, and it will simply end any hope you could have. No more, pay, no more promises, no more making partial payments. You pay it off now. By law, we can do that. That's a puttable. And, and uh, corporate bonds can have a puttable provision. Now, a convertible, a convertible uh, is um, one where the, bond, the debt can be turned into stock. It could be either way. The company could decide, we're going to turn your debt into stock in our company. They would usually do that if they couldn't pay off the pay their interest payment or something like that. They say, "Well, you're 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 stockholders now. Company's going to hell, but you're one of us now." The other side is if the uh, lender has the convertibility, then the lender might see the company doing really well. Stock price has a lot of upside potential, and they could say, "All right." We have this clause in the indenture agreement that says we can turn our debt into stock at a specific price per share. Bondholders become stockholders. Either way. There are other provisions. I want to bring up one that's in the book and make a little bit of a generalization of it. Now, your textbook puts warrants into the context of debt. But warrants are a larger thing than just debt. And I'll tell you a, a story from my days of consulting. Uh, I was consulting for a company that want, was going to go public. It needed to raise a million dollars. It was going to do an IPO. And it wanted to sell 100,000 shares at $10 a share. That was not going to fly. Uh, they, they might have been able to get some subscription, but they would not uh, fully subscribe at that price per share. But they didn't want to issue more than 100,000 shares because they'd go below, the insiders would go below majority control. So here was my suggestion, which they took. 
we did what was called a unit offering. Not a stock offering, but a unit offering. The unit offering was for $10, you get one share of stock, but you also get the right to buy another share of stock at $12.50, regardless of what price the stock is at. So in other words, if, as the company believed, it was going to make this stock go well up in price, this warrant would be great. It would be like uh, if the stock price went to $15, well, this warrant in the unit gave the holder of the, of the share the right to buy another share at $12.50, regardless of what the stock price was. Well, that was enough to get uh, it fully subscribed. It worked. So a warrant is like extra on uh, a base certificate. Like in bonds, a bond could be issued. Uh, Microsoft could say, we need to borrow $20 million. And I say, okay, but what I'd like is some warrants with that so that I could buy shares of Microsoft at a price that I know it's going to beat in the time frame that I could exercise the warrants, okay? So it, it, it's like a sweetener to get, to get something sold. It's like, I'll sell, okay, I'll sell the, you uh, one of my artworks for $400. But if I become famous, well, you say, oh, that's too much for that crap of yours. But if I become famous, I have an extra provision that I'll also be your friend. Now, you wouldn't exercise that provision if I stay a, a poor, starving artist. But if I become famous, then you got me as your bro. You see how that would make the $400 price more palatable in a way? You're kind of looking around, I don't want you for my friend anyway, asshole. <laughs> but you understand, though, that I'm, I'm giving an extra sweetener, like a, like a kicker on it to do the deal. So that's where a warrant would work in bonds. The textbook talks about warrants while this is a bond thing. No, it, it happens in stocks as well. And there are two types of warrants. There's ones that are non-detachable. The warrant has to be exercised by the owner of the stock, okay? But there's a detachable version where you can literally tear the warrant off and sell it on its own. I actually did an investment, a risky as heck investment, in warrants last year. They were just out there. And, Honestly, I didn't even know I was buying the warrants. I thought I was buying the stock. And it, I didn't see that little, I didn't pay attention to the little W beside the trading symbol. It was the warrants on the stock that I bought. Fortunately, the stock price was going up, so the warrants went up in price too. They were more valuable. And I got, once I saw that I had a W on it, I sold those things very fast. Because they're pretty, the warrants are sensitive. They're technically a derivative called a call option. But I didn't know that when I did it, but there you are. Okay, so those are out there too as part one of the things in bonds. And I'm sure I've forgotten a couple of them, but uh, those are the biggies. And all of this and much, much more 
is in the indenture agreement. Every part of what happens is in there. Uh, all the machinery is laid out. And when you borrow for a mortgage alone on a house, that's what you're signing is an indenture agreement. That's how it works. And just like when you borrow, remember I told you that the bank is going to keep your loan for about an hour before it sells it to the secondary mortgage market? The same is true for bonds. The original lenders, prob I, I, I don't know if I should say probably, but they might simply sell the bonds. The secondary market for bonds is vast. It's 10 times the size of the secondary market for stocks. Those bonds, you could pick up a bond that has maturity date in three years. You could just look up the trading symbol for the bond and say, I'll buy it. Right now, I'll buy that bond. So it's not like this is all original issue. Bonds are bought and sold all the time by corporations and by trust funds and by wealthy individuals. It's just they aren't talked about much because they are so much safer than stocks that there's not really a lot of sex appeal to them on, uh, in blogs and news networks. Well, that bond really did move. It moved like a dollar today on every thousand. Now, they just, they're, they're just not that exciting. Now, a couple of things about now the other side. And I can divide this a lot more than what I'm going to do here, but I'm going to tell you some things. We are in the world, in this class, and in finance that we would do at the university level. We are in the world of the big leagues. We're not talking about consumer bonds here at all. You'll calculate mortgage payments on a bond, on, on a on a house, but this is where we get into the hard world. Types of bonds. First one to bring up are the government. Government bonds. The government sells bonds to raise money to pay its bills. It sells notes and bills too. But we're, we're talking about the long stuff, the 20-year and the 30-year stuff. Yeah. The government does this because our government doesn't have enough money from tax revenues to pay all of its bills, to pay even a decent fraction of its bills. So, why, well, why is that? Because we've got low, low taxes, and we just don't raise enough with our spending levels to pay all of our bills. So we borrow money. We borrow billions and billions, trillions of dollars from lenders because we can't pay our bills by ourselves. Now, who are the lenders? Big lenders include the Chinese. Why? Well, the Chinese have trillions of dollars. Well, how do they have trillions of dollars? Because we buy their stuff, their cheap Chinese imports, and we, in exchange, export our dollars to them. They collect those in the People's Bank of China, 
It's called foreign reserves. And then the Chinese have to, have to spend dollars in the United States, so they just spend them on, they just lend us money by buying our treasury bonds and our treasury notes and our treasury bills. They, buy, they lend us in, uh, incomprehensible amounts of money every year. And we live off that. The uh, Japanese do it. Europeans do it. Canadians do it. The whole world lends us money because we can't live within our means. So they're happy to lend to us because they've got all those dollars we sent, we, we exported to them when we imported their stuff. The Arabs have got a ton of petrodollars, so they spend them lending us money because we are just too good to pay our own bills with taxes. So that's how it works. And it just gets worse and worse. Now, it wasn't always this way. There was a period of time, well, we had, for many, many decades, we'd been borrowing money to pay our bills from other places. But then some magic happened in the 1990s. We started in 1993 borrowing less. In 94, even less. The economy was rolling hard and strong. Tax revenues were great. Stock market going up. Capital gains taxes were pouring, revenues were pouring in. We were doing fantastic. And by the time we get to about 1997, was it? We actually weren't borrowing any money. No more treasury bonds were being issued. We didn't need any money. 98 was better. 99 was spectacular. 2000. We were not only not borrowing money, we were paying off the debt that we had borrowed in the years before this started happening. It was just great. All the stuff we were talking about with these surpluses, free college education for everybody, universal health care paid for, I mean, space exploration, you name it. But then it turned around. When the new administration came in in 2001, well, my God, we're going into a horrible recession. No, we weren't. We weren't going into any recession. The Fed even had to redo its numbers years later to make it look like we did. Oh, we got to have the biggest, the large, deepest, longest tax cuts in history to save this country. They did it. Oh, by the way, we also have two theater wars, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. So we just went back into debt, and we have never come back from that debt. Just worse and worse every year. More treasury bonds being issued every year than the year before. The Chinese stepping up to the plate saying, we'll lend you the money. Japanese, Arabs, Canadians, Europeans, oh, we'll lend you the money, sure. You pathetic Americans. Okay, so that's government debt, treasury bonds. Now, there's another piece that I want to bring up here that the book doesn't. The government, through the Treasury Department, borrows tons of money. However, there's another aspect of government debt that isn't looked at that is pretty significant. It's called agency debt. The government has these 
kind of like semi-autonomous agencies that fund themselves. They issue bonds themselves to raise money. These are like the Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA, is one of them. There are a number of others around the country for different kinds of regional projects and things like that. They borrow their own money as agency debt. Now, an important aspect of this is that when you see our national debt, how much we owe the rest of the world, the accumulation of all of our budget deficits year over year, usually that number doesn't include the agency debt. Usually doesn't. You have to look at what they are actually including. Is it just the treasury debt? Or are they also including the debt of all these agencies? Now, the argument they would use for not including the agencies is that those agency bonds are not backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, as are the Treasury. But everyone kind of assumes that the government would make it good, uh, make it whole, if an agency defaulted on its debt. It's, it's a mixed bag. Some people say, no, the government would just cut it off. And others would say, no, the government would step up to the plate. So it really is government debt. Who knows? Fortunately, we've never had an agency default on its debt, so we've never tested whether the government would step in or, and make it right or not, underwrite it. Okay, now, corporate. Corporate is the stuff I've been talking about. Bonds issued by corporations. It comes in all kinds of flavors like I've put over there. Now, corporate debt is also characterized by its rating. There, and I'll, I'll do this again on Wednesday. But there are three major rating services, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch. Each of them has its own letters to designate the quality of the debt. Like AAA, Standard & Poor's AAA debt, the highest grade. It, is, it has a tiny default premium as, because it's not likely at all that this, that this company that took out this loan is going to default. So obviously that has a low default premium, AAA debt. And then below that is the double A, the A, the B, 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 B uh, C, D. As it goes down, obviously the coupon is going to go up because there's a higher chance that that kind of debt is, that debt is going to, that company could default. And it can, uh, once you get into the B range, and I've seen even single A called this, the street name for it is junk, junk bonds. The polite company name is high yield bonds. Well, obviously they're high yield. The coupon's high because there's a big default premium in the coupon. But uh, so if, if you're in polite company in a corporation, so you issued uh, B grade bonds. Uh, so that's junk bonds. No, it do not say that. It's just high yield bonds. The um, Netflix issued notes that were 
street called them junk bonds because they were high yield, high coupon because the markets, the, the negotiation with the lenders and between the lenders and the borrower, Netflix, the lender said, you're risky AF. You've got, you're running out of room for subscriptions. The only way you're going to get more subscriptions is by jack, jacking up your subscription fees and people are going to bail. So it was considered in high yield, not investment grade, high yield. In other words, junk bonds. So junk bonds don't, the term junk doesn't apply just to dead or flopping corporations. It can apply to corporations that you might not think of. But there's that. Okay, corporate debt is the common debt all over the world. Now a couple of twists and variations on the debt. Um, there are munis. Municipal bonds. Those are bonds, that's borrowings by governments, government authorities below the federal level. State munis, town munis, school district munis. Now, here's the thing about municipals, munis. First of all, they, the interest is tax is tax exempt at the federal level. The interest is tax exempt. So in other words, if you're in a high tax bracket, these are very attractive. That's why their interest rates are low. They're reflecting that tax shield that that tax exemption. If you're not in the highest tax bracket, you don't want to buy munis because their interest rates are lower by the tax exemption that the wealthy would get. So you don't want to buy munis unless you're a rich person. The next thing about munis is they're, they're like I said, state, local, for like a sewerage project, school district, that's technically a muni. And they are, here's one version, a revenue bond. A city might say, okay, we're going to, uh, or a, let's say a school district. A school district says, we need to borrow $5 million to build a couple of new schools, some really nice new schools. And what we'll do is we will raise property taxes for the life of this bond so, and earmark that extra so that that's what we pay, how we pay our interest and our principal at the end on the bond. So it's almost like a guarantee. And so lenders are fairly happy to make those kinds of, uh, buy those bonds from school districts because of that, uh, that revenue, that earmark in there. That's bad for the lenders if, say, there's a recession and property values just drop. Well, that would, you know, then they wouldn't have that, that percentage tax wouldn't be enough to pay the interest and they'd have to pull it out of the general fund. So there's that kind of downside. So there is some risk of a default in those. More generally though, m historically, municipal bonds were considered to be very safe instruments. 
cities don't default. Well, unfortunately, that, that misperception was popped decades ago in a spectacular um, example called Cleveland, Ohio, which defaulted on, I think it was more than one muni. No one had ever contemplated a muni defaulting, a city defaulting on a muni. Well, that sent shockwaves through the uh, through the buy the lending uh, the muni lending market, and so the default premium just jumped on all munis. Now that there was clearly seen a bigger possibility that munis could default than had been seen before, and then we've had a few defaults since then. Uh, Detroit, things like that, places like that. Now, interestingly, some states have more of a default premium than other states do because there's a higher likelihood of immunity default in those states. Illinois has the infamous Illinois premium. The coupon on an Illinois muni is higher than the coupon on some other states' munis because there's a higher probability of default here in Illinois. Now, don't get me wrong. Illinois' main uh, thing is that it spends too damn much money. There are other states that have high default premiums, abnormally high default premiums, because they don't tax enough. So uh, there is a there is a greater likelihood of default in either circumstance. State spends too much, default premium. State doesn't tax enough, higher default premium. There you go. So that's that. Now, along that same line, let me check. Yep, I got enough here. The next kind is foreign bonds. Foreign bonds. This is a bond issued by a domestic corporation, but it is the coupons and payoff of the face are in a foreign currency. Like for example, an MNC, a multinational company based in the United States, might issue a bond that pays its coupons and, fa and uh, face value at the end in euros. Why would it do that? Well, one reason is that this company might be building a factory in Germany. So if they denominate borrow from Europe, then they, if the factory's making stuff and earning revenue in euros, they don't have to worry about exchange rate risk between the dollar and the euro going up and down. I mean, they take in the money in euros, they pay the bond in euros. Now, there are foreign countries that issue in dollars. Japan, a corporation in Japan, might issue a foreign bond denominated in American dollars. Well, why? Well, one good reason a lot of foreign companies issue foreign bonds in American dollars is we have this vast capital market, and they want to access our money here in this country. Uh, that's one other one. Now, last one here, gold bonds. Now, I'm using gold as the example, but it could be 
any commodity, the payoff, the interest, and the principal are paid in gold. They could be paid in silver. I've heard rumors, and I, I don't know whether I was being bluffed, but I heard rumors that there are bonds that pay off in stuff, like cocoa or something like that. I'm not sure I believe that story, but yeah, it could be in about anything that has value. And, and you can see kind of, one of the things about that is that if you pay off in dollars, inflation will erode the value of what's being paid off to the lenders. But in some, like gold or diamonds, well, they hold value. And so it, it, that could be a sweetener for some lenders. Oh, you're going to pay us in gold? Well, hell to the yeah. Or diamonds? Oh, yeah. So that would sort of give a better assurance to the lenders that they were going to get something of value back. The hell? <laughs> Close it! <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> yeah, I am too. Oh, I'm gonna piss oh, God! This pisses me off. That's all I have for you today. Go home!